I was you know, thinking about, uh, you'll see the title of the text or of the message is the School of God's Saving Grace. It made me think of all the schooling and the stuff you hear today where this generation is loaded down with student debt, <clears throat> incredible student debt because of the high cost of an, of an education. And, and beyond that, many are saying they've, they've given themselves years to this education and, and all the money, and then when it's all said and done, Fairly useless as far as returning the return of uh, investment on investment. I, uh, I didn't have the, the benefit of going to university or college, being married at a very, very young age. I remember I used to like to say when people asked me, hey, where did you get your education? I would say I got it at the school of hard knocks, at the school of hard knocks. You know the term, the phrase? Uh, life certainly gives you an education. I would say... Uh, a rather valuable one. It can be costly as well, but a rather valuable one. Uh, and I would say that the lessons of life, the lessons of life, have, a, have an impact on one's behavior. Going to the school of hard knocks, as I did, I, I learned a couple of things. I, I learned some things about money, things I wanted to do concerning money, having uh, watched those around me, never put anything away, save every, spend every last dollar every time they got it, and then constantly finding themselves in difficult situations and, and panicked and having anxiety because there was no rainy day fun. So that's one of those lessons I learned in life and so have uh, made it my aim and ambition to always put something away, have something set aside, not just for myself, but maybe to help others. Of course, I also learned um, not to be so gullible. And I've had to even fight with that because Boy, life has a way of teaching you that you can't trust people. And yet, in order to have relationships, you gotta you gotta try to trust people. You gotta you gotta trust them. And so, but God has helped me a great deal with that. But I said all that to say this. Today we are going to get an education, a good one, a good one, from the school of God's saving grace. And the lessons of saving grace should impact how we as God's people. God save people, live in the present age. Just like all the lessons I learned from life, they have impacted my behavior, they have changed the way I interact and what I do and how I think and how I function, so also the lessons of grace should impact the way we live our lives as those who follow Christ. So that's what we're looking at this morning, all right? In the section we finished last week, which was chapter 10, verses 1 through 10, uh, 10 sorry, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, there were a number of ethical instructions, and we, we I think, was it seven parts? Seven, seven messages in that section. But there were a number of ethical instructions given by Paul to Titus to pass on to the Christians in Crete. And these instructions had a dual purpose. First, that their behavior, the Christian's behavior, would not lead outsiders, those who did not follow Christ, would not lead outsiders to think poorly of the Christian religion and or give opponents of the gospel any ammunition to speak evil of the gospel. And second, that their lives would show the beauty and real power 
and true goodness of Christianity and thereby lead outsiders to be attracted or drawn to it and possibly, hopefully, become believers themselves. A commendable, attractive life is what Paul was addressing. And beloved, that's what a life no longer under the power and rule of sin, but now entirely under the power and rule of Christ should produce a beautiful life. A beautiful life. A life of God's goodness, of God's righteousness on display. Now, in verse 10, and we see that in that section, he closes out that section by basically saying that in everything they may show or put on display by their behavior the beauty of the gospel, of the good news concerning Jesus Christ. They are to adorn it by their lives. I said all that to say this. Verse 11 is connected to that section. So I had to review that section before we step into the next one. So our text today begins in verse 11 with an explanatory four. If you're there, you can look at it. You can see it there. It begins with an explanatory four. I'm going to explain now what I just said, which ties all of the ethical instructions in verses 1 through 10 that we spent seven Sundays covering it ties that with what follows verse 11, 11 and following verses through 15. In this section that we're going to look at this morning, Paul connects the ethical instructions that he just gave for believers, he connects it with the saving grace of God that every believer embraces. What Paul does here, beloved, is he, he grounds... Christian conduct in the truth of God's saving grace, which, when rightly understood, educates us and properly motivates us to live godly lives in this present age. You with me? That's the introduction to the text. Let's read it now, and then we'll dive into the details. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, he says to Titus, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. All right, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. For the grace of God has appeared. Can you guys hear me? Am I coming through? 
I'm gonna, I'm gonna, um, if you can turn me up a little bit, I want to tone down a little bit. I'm gonna not make it. Okay. For the grace of God has appeared. The grace Paul speaks of here is God's saving grace. God's saving grace. Or the grace of God that saves sinners. We know that because the text indicates that. It is the grace that has, according to the text, brought salvation for all people. It is God's saving grace. It is God's, just for review, it is God's unmerited, when we speak of God's saving grace, it is God's unmerited and undeserved kindness and favor toward us as sinners in rescuing us from his just wrath against us and in making us his children with all the benefits and blessings that are included in that. That is God's saving grace. One writer points out that without God's saving grace, there can be no salvation, since grace is foundational to salvation. If it were not for God's grace, not a one of us could be saved. Not a one of us. We couldn't do anything to redeem ourselves. We couldn't do anything to change our situation. We could not and cannot do anything to make ourselves right with God. Nor are we awesome and wonderful and therefore deserving of any of God's blessings. But instead, what the Bible teaches is that we are born into this world as sinners and as such rebels, bent on running away from God, bent on disobeying God, bent on raising our fist to him and saying, no, if we're not for his saving grace, not a one of us could be saved. It is his grace, beloved. It is his grace. But Paul says this saving grace of God has appeared, has appeared. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. Paul has similar language in his letter, second letter to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 1. I'll read that to you, beginning in verse 8. There Paul writes these words. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. He's a prisoner because he's preaching the gospel and making it known. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us the believers in Christ Jesus before the ages begin. And then verse 10. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Based on that passage, without me making any explanation of it, but based on that passage and compared to Titus 2, when Paul says, for the grace of God 
has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, what do you think he's talking about? Huh? Yes. Jesus. Jesus. One writer calls it, the grace of God has appeared, he calls it, the manifestation of grace as a historical reality. Another writer says, the grace of God was revealed and personified in Jesus Christ. He is God's grace on display and at work. He's it. You want to know God's grace? Look at Jesus Christ. The fact that he appeared, it's an interesting, uh, it's, a, it's a verb. It's from which we derive our English word epiphany. Epiphany. The Greek word means to become visible, to make an appearance. Grace showed up. Grace showed up in Jesus Christ. And this appearing was not limited to Jesus' birth, but refers to his entire life, including his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation, which all accompanied the salvation that is now offered to all men. To all men. And that just fits with everything else we know about salvation, that it is for all men. In Romans chapter 10, Paul makes it clear, the same idea, when he says in verse 11, For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek or Gentile. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, will be saved. This grace is for all who will receive it, embrace it. Now this wonderful saving grace of God, and it is wonderful, beloved. Apart from it, we would still be dead in our sins. We'd still be under the wrath of God. We'd have no hope. Our future would be hell. Thank you for the grace of God. But this wonderful saving grace of God that has appeared is also, is also the educating grace of God. The educating grace of God. I would say it this way. The grace that saves the sinner also educates the sinner. Or at least it should. It should. Paul says, looking back now at our text in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Verse 12, training us. That very grace. Training us to renounce ungodliness. That saving grace of God manifested and personified in the person of Jesus Christ and his saving work on the cross, his resurrection, his exaltation, his coming again. That very grace is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Training. Training is a present participle, so the idea is continuous action. It is continuing to train us. And boy, do we need continual training. 
in the school of God's, or at the school of God's saving grace. We are our biggest enemies. But we have God's grace. But we need to be continually trained by it. Training, as I said, continuous action, a present participle, the Greek verb commonly means to instruct, educate. In fact, other translations translate it that way. The New American Standard Bible says that this grace is instructing us. The NIV 84 says it is teaching us or teaches us. So the saving grace of God, fully revealed and made known, to humanity, to us, in the person and redeeming work of Jesus Christ, trains, teaches, instructs, and educates us. And it does it in two directions. In two directions. One is negative and the other positive. So the idea is there is both a negative and positive work that it trains us in, ethically speaking. It teaches us, first of all, to say no to certain things, to renounce, as it is there translated in the ESV. And it also teaches us to say yes, that's the positive aspect, to other things, to live, is the idea, to live. So reject this and embrace that. Okay, That's what the grace of God teaches us or instructs us to do. Reject this and embrace that. Um, and it is both. And both are absolutely necessary in the Christian life. So you're not just told, don't eat this, but you're also told, eat that, right? For your physical health. Because if it was just all, don't eat this, and you were never instructed in what to eat, then you would not be a healthy person. You would not have any energy to live. You would not function, right? So to function properly, it's always both. It's not just not this, and then that's the end of the story. It's not this, and yes, it's this. You with me? And that's always critical. And we see that in other letters. We saw that when we went through Colossians. It's always these two things together, but it's both. It's also not just this, eat this, and don't worry about not eating these things. That's also dangerous or potentially unhealthy. You with me? So it's both. And it's the same in the spiritual life. A Christian's life, if you will, is to be marked both by no and yes. No and yes. Okay? There are things we must stand against, and there are things we must be for. You with me? So, you know, sometimes people say, I don't want to, you know, all you Christians, all you talk about is what you're against. Okay, I mean, if that is what we're doing, then that is not the full picture. But that doesn't mean I stop talking about what I'm not for or that I am against things or something, ethically speaking, morally speaking. The Christian must be against evil. He must be against sin. And first and foremost, he must be against it in his own or her own life. At the same time, the Christian must be for righteousness, godliness, the good. 
So what is God's saving grace teaching, training us to say no to? Let's look at that, okay? Very simple. Two things. Look back at the text, 2.12. Training us to renounce or say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. I have three other translations I want to show you the same phrase. The next one, the New American Standard. Okay, so they're not popping up, but here they are. Here they are. Okay, New American Standard. Yes, they are popping up. Instructing us to deny, deny is another way to say it, ungodliness and worldly desires. Here's the NIV 84. It teaches us, that is the saving grace of God, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And finally, the NET, it trains us to reject godless ways and worldly desires. Okay? Pretty straightforward, honestly. Beloved, what are you saying no to in your life? That's a question for you to consider. What are you saying no to? Are you saying no to anything? What are you saying no to in your life? What are you rejecting? What are you denying? What are you renouncing? Yeah, we teach our kids, say no to strangers, right? Stranger danger. We say that because we understand of, that there's real dangers associated with people who you don't know and, or there could potentially be. Let me say that. There's real danger out there, right? That's why we teach them to say no. We enforce it. We tell them. We reinforce it. There's real dangers in not saying no to these things for you, Christian. There's real damage done to the gospel and to its effective witness in our lives and for our church when you don't say no to these things. And remember, this training is a continuous thing. At least it is supposed to be in your life. You are to continually be trained by the gospel to be saying no to these things, to be rejecting them, to be denying them. I mean, do you give that thought? What am I going to say no to today? And is it these things? <laughs> we say no, so we have no problem saying no. Right? We, we know how to say no. We do it on many different levels. But are we, are we known for saying no to these things? The first one is ungodliness. Boy, that kind of, it's a big bucket. It's a big bucket. Uh, one writer identifies that as impiety and irreverence toward God. And it's, it's the thing that characterizes the unsaved life. So certainly those who have been saved should be rejecting, denying, saying no to, and renouncing a lack of reverence for God or any type of impiety. One writer says there must be a conscious, willful repudiation of thoughts, words, and actions that are opposed to true godliness. Whether you think it, whether you say it, whether you do it, if it is opposed to true godliness, you, Christian, should be trained by the grace of God to reject that thing. To not say it, to refuse, to think it. 
to refuse to do it. We are, uh, we are in this study called Respectable Sins. It's so good. And a lot of you are either partaking in that study via our group that we meet, that we meet once a month, or you're not able to attend and you're reading the book, and that's fantastic. And if you, haven't, if you don't have the book, let me again encourage you to get it and begin reading it. But this next month in March, he's going to cover two of those respectable sins, those sins that we allow to go unchecked in our lives that we tolerate as Christians, and we should not. And the two that he deals with this month, at least the pace we're keeping in the book, are ungodliness, chapter 7, and, I think, and um, unthankfulness. Ungodliness. Of ungodliness, this is how Jerry Bridges defines it in the book Respectable Sins in that chapter. He says, it is living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God or of God's will, which has been revealed. So we're not talking about some secret will. What do you want me to do right now, Lord? Lead me. I've told you what I want you to do. I've given you my word. It's right there, okay? So when we talk about God's will, it's his revealed will. I don't have to wait for it. It's right here. So it's living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God or of God's will or of God's glory or one's dependence on God. It's basically living as if God is irrelevant. And it shows up in various ways. Take no consideration or very little consideration of him. That's ungodliness. So that's what we say no to, or at least we're supposed to. The other one is worldly passions. Worldly passions. Several commentators define it this way. They are the desires that reflect the values of the present age with its anti-godly mindset. Another says all desires entirely centered in the present world system, which is a system that is apart from God. Another says they are cravings characteristic of the world in its estrangement from God. And finally, one says there must be a renunciation of desires for things, pleasures, and values derived from this present worldly system which is hostile to God. And how, how would I know what is hostile to God? I was just thinking about that. How would I even know that? Well, I guess I would have to read his word. I would, have to, I would find there, because God has not kept it secret, but he has made himself known so that we might know him and live in light of that knowledge. I know, I know by his word what stands against him because I know by his word what he stands for. I know who he is and I know what shouldn't be a part of my life because I am his. And so as his, I should be what he is, morally speaking. Worldly passions 
ungodliness. Those are the things that the saving grace of God instructs us to deny, to renounce, to reject. One commentator says, grace aims to lead the believer to the place where as a definite act, he will voluntarily make a double renunciation of the past. He must repudiate and abandon ungodliness as well as worldly passions. Such an act of renunciation, standing at the beginning of a life of Christian victory, must be maintained in daily self-denial. It is in part a denial of ungodliness, a pushback against that and worldly passions that must take place when one comes to Christ and embraces him as Lord and Savior, but it does not end there. That denial, that renunciation, that rejection must continue throughout that believer's life because we still are fighting a battle against ourselves and our fallenness, and our sin nature, that continually, even though it has been crushed under the weight of Christ, raises its dumb, ugly head continually in our life and tries to convince us that it still runs our lives and continually tempts us to deny God and embrace a world system that hates God. And so we must continue the daily denial of our fallen self. How do we know that God's saving grace trains us to do this? How do we know that? Well, we know that because of the text. The text teaches us that we are to give up such living Because Christ, grace personified, gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness. Verse 14 corresponds with the instructions and exhortations in verse 12. So because this is true, then this must take place. So if looking back at the text, in verse 14... This is how we know, this is how we see God's saving grace training us that we must denounce ungodliness and worldly passions because Jesus, verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us, another translation, set us free from all lawlessness. Another translation, every kind of lawlessness Another translation, all wickedness. Another one, every lawless deed. And if you're going to go real general, another translation, all evil. He gave himself to set us free. Now listen, as one writer points out, this this payment, this ransom payment, if you will, made by Christ to purchase us for himself and to set us free from the slavery of sin. It it delivers those who have embraced it from all lawlessness, from every kind of lawlessness. And the idea is we see Paul communicate that in Romans 
chapter 6 is that it is both from the power of sin and the penalty of sin that Christ has set us free. So again, you've heard me say this over and over and over again because it needs to be said over and over and over again and because the Bible keeps talking about it because I think we need to keep hearing it that it's not only the penalty of sin that we have been rescued from but also its power that it had prior to us embracing Christ, its power in our lives. That rule, that reign that it had over us is broken in Christ. And because of that, we are to walk away from and deny all the temptations and all the draw and all the pull back to that life. That's why Christ came to set us free from that. That's what saving grace is teaching you, Christian. A couple of uh, commentators, they say, it is on the basis of the self-giving of Christ that he delivers his people from sin. And he says it this way, not merely out of, but from in the fullest sense. And that deliverance is continuing and it's full and it's consummation, it's completion will occur, occur when he comes again and we are glorified and fully and completely rescued from our sin. But he is doing a rescuing now. He's doing a rescuing now. He's saving us now. And in light of that saving, in cooperation with it, in light of it, in knowledge of it, we are to be denying that sin in our lives. Let it have no place on godliness, worldly passions. It's to have no place in our lives any longer. I like what Ron Ryder says. He says, to redeem us from all lawlessness. The expression, the expression stresses not our guilt as rebels. He has saved us from that. But that expression expresses not that, but rather our deliverance from bondage to lawlessness through Christ's ransom. From indicates effective removal from that sphere and our deliverance from all aspects of its domination. This is where you once lived, dominated by sin, led about by it. You had no power over it. It ruled you. But no longer, he came to set you free. Back to 12 training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That's the negative aspect, the negative work. That's what we say no to. That's what we deny. That's what we renounce. But as I said, the Christian life is never just no, but it's no and yes. And so here on the flip side, the positive side, we see and Christian in light of God's saving grace to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Sensible lives, upright lives, godly lives. Our entire course of life, as one writer says, should be consistently characterized by those three qualities. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. I think they're fairly self-explanatory. I will say this, self-controlled is the same word that we've already dealt with a number of times back in chapter 1, verse 8, chapter 2, verse 2, and verse 5. I think it's better translated sensible, a sensible life. 
self-controlled in saying and choosing to walk in wisdom and prudence and living according to God's wisdom and not being led about by your your gut or your heart or any of those nonsense things or just acting on a whim or impulsively but living with God's instruction guiding you and making that choice every time to act in accordance with wisdom. That's the idea of being self-controlled, sensible. But it's interesting, you could categorize these three um, characteristics, self-controlled, upright, and godly, as speaking to the inward, man, the inward part of the Christian life, the outward part of the Christian life, and the upward part of the Christian life. In this way, inward, self-controlled, sensible, Okay, so that's a, I'm making a decision to act not based on just how I feel at the moment, but to think and act godly and properly and as God would have me. That's inward, outward, upright. Okay, upright. It has the nuance, the idea is righteously, but it has the nuance of faithfully fulfilling all the demands of truth and justice in our relations with others. So there's this outward aspect. I am to be upright with others. Right? I'm to act righteously, justly towards them. So I have the inward aspect, sensible, outwardly, upright, and then up, outward, upright. Yeah, and I'm getting confused myself. And then upward, upward, godly, godly, reverently. So the idea is fully devoted to God in reverence and loving obedience. In other words, lives pleasing to God. I'm looking to live a life pleasing to God. So inwardly I'm dealing with that, outwardly I'm dealing with it, and upwardly, all of them in line. Okay? with the Lord, living according to his word. By the way, this also corresponds to Christ's work in verse 14. God's saving grace. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, okay, and not just redeem us from all lawlessness, not just set us free, but set us free to live in that freedom properly, accordingly to Christ, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. Purify. That's, um, it's another metaphor. It's of cleansing. Just think of cleansing. Cleansing from our moral defilement or that which defiles us morally. It's a cleansing. He, he, he rescued us. He gave himself for us, not only to set us free from all lawlessness and its domination over our lives, but that we might be cleansed from all the moral defilement and filth, that we would be pure and walk in holiness. He says here, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, the idea is a peculiar treasure. That's what the, the Greek there means, a peculiar treasure, treasure, something which belongs in a special sense to oneself. In this case, it is the people of God belonging in a special sense to Christ. To Christ. Our righteous Savior, Jesus Christ, has given himself to make us his own righteous treasure. That was why he gave himself up. Not that we would continue just continuing in our junk and in our mess and in our sin, walking in unholiness, ignoring God. That's not why he gave himself. 
just so that we could not have to go to hell, but then do whatever we want in the meantime? You haven't been taught by grace. You haven't, you haven't learned from the school of God's saving grace, if that's what you think, and so I hope you'll learn now. And because we're forgetful people, I hope you'll go back to that school again and again and remind yourself of these truths. What did God, why did Christ redeem me? Why? This is why. And in light of that, then this is how I should live. He adds in uh, verse 12, looking back now, verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In this present age, well, he calls, Paul calls this present age in Galatians 1.4 evil. He calls it the present evil age, which is right. Uh, it's an age dominated by sin and anti-godliness. And what was true then is true now. We're still in that age. So that really contrasts the thing because this Christian living is to be carried out in an evil world that is hostile to God. So it's not, a, it's not an easy task for sure, not a simple one. You're not going to get a lot of high fives and affirmations per se. But nonetheless, this is what Christ redeemed you for. Live out this life in this present evil age. And as I said, and as we saw in the passage before, God uses that life to draw those he's going to save to himself as they see it, and they see it as a, a beautiful thing, which it is. They see it rightly, and they're drawn to it in contrast to the the ugliness of our world and its rejection of God, because it is ugly. But in mentioning this present age, it also presupposes another. Right? If this is the present age, then it presupposes there's an age to come, and there is. There's a future age for which the Christian, as one writer says, believer hopes with assurance and perseverance. We live these Christian lives, or we ought to live these Christian lives in anticipation of the age to come. We are, as he says, waiting for our blessed hope. Waiting for our blessed hope. And uh, the blessed hope probably means, you could just understand it this way, the hope that brings blessing or blessedness. And what is that hope? Paul says, he says it is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That's the blessed hope. That's the hope that brings blessedness. It is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. One writer puts it this way, or one translation puts it this way, it's while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. So having renounced our sinful past, we are now to live godly lives in the present as we look eagerly 
to the future. That is not when we retire, not the weekend, but that is the future of the personal return of Christ who will consummate our bliss in eternal glory. I think there are so many things that could be said about how that motivates us to live this life now. So in, in a number of ways, but in, in, one, in a couple of ways, in, as I'm living this life in the midst of an evil generation that doesn't affirm me in my godliness, generally speaking, but rather opposes it and speaks against it and says terrible things about it, I keep my eye not on that, but on him and the age to come when he comes and establishes his righteousness that I'm living for now on this planet in a way that cannot be rejected again or renounced or denied by all the rebels. And so it, it, it motivates me. It gives me encouragement and strength. I'm living in light of that. I'm living, of the, living in light of the righteous one who's called me to live a righteous life, who's bringing his righteousness to this land, to this world, to this universe. There's a certain sense of a peace. It helps me. I, I, I know how it all ends. I know how it all ends. And it ends in righteousness. And so I'm to live in light of that. Do what you want, world. Do what you want. But I have been bought by Christ. And he has set me free to live for him in this way. That's why he purchased me. That's why he laid down his life for me. And so because of that, I must live like this. And you would be wise to get on board this train. Because this train's headed towards righteousness, and your train's headed towards hell and damnation. So get on board. But even if you don't, this is where I am. This is where I live. This is where I'm staying. This is the train I'm on. I think about faithfulness to our master as an implication. I'm, I'm living like this with my eye on him and the glory that is to come. And he said, I'm going to leave you here to do my work and you better be faithful. I'm coming again, right? So there's a sense where I'm, I feel an obligation. I need to remain faithful to him. I'm not forgetting that he's coming. He is coming. This is not how it always will be. Things are going to be different, very different. The king is coming in his glory. And when he comes, will he find me faithful? I want him to find me faithful. And this is what faithfulness looks like. Denying worldly passions and ungodliness. Saying no and saying yes to sensibleness, self-control, godliness, uprightness, continually. <laughs> I think about reward. Jesus says in Revelation twenty two twelve, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. And that reward, beloved, is a permanent one. A permanent one. No one's taking that away. No pension system's going to cause that to dissolve. Right? 
So if I'm living in light of this eternity, I'm living in light of my king's return and his glory, I'm living in light of he's called me to be faithful until he comes, I'm living in light of the rewards that he's bringing with him for those who have been faithful to him, then that's a motivator to live this life. One writer says, He who eagerly awaits the return of the Savior will be eager also to further his cause by good works until he comes. I think about the future. The future will be one of righteousness and consume with the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If that's your future, and it is if you're in Christ, then it should be your present, personally. You should be one of righteousness, and you should be consumed, and I, with the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what he purchased me for, to that end. And I'm supposed to be moving toward it. And finally, just this final, because we have to close this out, he, and we have communion, this final exhortation, declare these things in verse 15, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Basically, Paul now turns to urge Titus to teach these things. These things that he refers to here refers at least to what we just read in verses 12 through 14. It may refer to more of the letter, certainly, but it, at minimum, it's that. He's to exhort, he's to encourage the church, he's to rebuke those who have gone wayward and to instruct them accordingly to get back on track. And he's to do this with all authority, which of course is his, is Titus's, by relationship, by his relationship to the Apostle Paul as an apostolic representative in Crete. So it's a simple instruction. And as one writer points out, it may be more for those who it's being read to than it is for Titus himself. In other words, the Apostle Paul himself, let no one disregard you. So as it's being read to the churches, to the communities, if someone was thinking about pushing back against Titus, they should think twice. The Apostle Paul has spoken, and he speaks with authority, and he's granted that authority to Titus to speak these things, to instruct in these things, to exhort in these things, to correct according to these things. Let me close with this, and then we'll have uh, our brother come up and do communion. One writer said this, the highest and purest motivation for Christian behavior is not based on what we can do for God, but rather upon what God has done for us and yet will do. And we see that, we saw that all in the text in God's saving work and in Christ's saving work and redemption on our behalf. He goes on to say, Paul taught that only as we grasp the full theological significance of God's grace, his saving grace, personified in the person of Christ, only then can we eagerly do what is pleasing to him.